Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, November 24th episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Lia Marche, with whom I'll be discussing her poem, Blues People, and my poem, Maturation. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of November 25th. On Tuesday, November 26th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop in Room 101 of the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 6.30 to 8 p.m., the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing the Pat Tillman Veteran Center and the Office for Veteran Military Academic Engagement will be hosting its first Veterans Writing Circle with Marco Pina. This will be taking place at Piper Writer House at 450 East Tyler Mall in Tempe. You can email m.mcdonough at asu.edu for more information about the event. Again, that's m.mc. D-O-N-O-U-G-H at ASU.edu. From 6.30 to 9.30 p.m., Nocturnal, the Poet, and the Poor People's Campaign will be hosting the Art of Justice Open Mic and Art Show, where I will be the feature poet. This will be taking place at First Church at 1407 North 2nd Street in Phoenix. The entrance is in the back at the parking lot. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 6 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., King Kong will be hosting his The Underground Experience at La Flor de Calabaza at 705 North 1st Street, Suite 110 in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 8 p.m. On Wednesday, November 27th, from 5 to 10 p.m., Walt Richard II will be hosting his weekly Walk-In Wednesdays Open Mic Night at the Tempe Center for the Arts, which is at 700 West Rio Salado Parkway in Tempe. This is a two-parter where from 5 to 6, youth and high schoolers will be performing, and 6 to 10 p.m., everybody else will be performing. Signing up for the first part starts at 4.45 p.m. Signing up for the second part starts at 5 p.m. On Thursday, November 28th, from 2 to 4 p.m., Hope for Phoenix, Hopeful Sundays, will be providing a Thanksgiving dinner for the unsheltered, where I'll be reading my poetry. This will take place at First Church at 1407 North 2nd Street in Phoenix. On Saturday, November 30th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Bonnie Books will be hosting her Small Business Saturday with open mics at 12.30 p.m. and 3 p.m. This will be taking place at Jarrah's Coffee, Tea, and Gallery which is located at 154 West Main Street in Mesa. You can sign up 20 minutes before the start of each open mic session, which again will be at 12.30 and 3 p.m. From 7 to 10 p.m., Suzanne Steinberg will be hosting her Share Your Art, Share Your Heart event taking place at the Garage Art Gallery behind the carport 
1536 West Roma Avenue in Phoenix. You should RSVP with steinberg.suzanne at gmail.com. Steinberg is S-T-E-I-N-B-E-R-G dot Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E at gmail.com. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Leah Marche. Hi, Leah. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. So Leah has brought with her blues people. Before we get into that, however, I would love for you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a native of Phoenix, mm -hmm. Arizona. So born and raised here. Lived here my entire life. Mm -hmm. Visited places, but never lived anywhere else other mm -hmm. than here. Grew up on the south side of Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Went to schools called Martin Luther King Jr. School, and then across mm -hmm. from that school was Percy L. Julian. So okay. they were right next to each other, the junior high school. In that area was Louis Farrakhan's mansion home. Oh. It's in that area, okay. so always going to school, you would see that. Okay. I didn't know he lived here. He or has a base here. I don't think he lives here. He oh, might okay. have some family comes and goes, but it's okay. just a... Okay. One base, I, I believe he's in either Chicago or D.C. or something like okay. that, well, mainly. So, uh, only child. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't really talk about myself like that. Okay. Well, how, um, did, you, how did you get into poetry? Then? How did I get into poetry? Well, my background is in journalism. Okay. So, I would always go to the poetry events, and mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. would just observe, listen, you know, mm -hmm. and interview, right, like right. what you're doing, interview the poets and right. take pictures and all of that. Mm -hmm. But performing poetry was nothing that I did. I may have right. dabbled in writing it, but mm -hmm. never really got serious about it. Right. So I would go to an event. It was at Marley's downtown. It was called uh, Live at the Studio, hosted by a poet, Wisdom Soul. Okay. So I would just go there. It was a regular hangout. I think it may have been monthly. Mm -hmm. But it was just that one place that you, I'd always go to. Right. So she'd see me there, and she's like, okay, so when are you going to get on the mic? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, no, that's not for me. I'm not going to do that. But every time I come, she just always asked that. You right, know, I'm just right. like, whatever. I'm like, why do you keep asking me? You know? <laughs> and then she asked, and one time I said, okay. I'll do it, you know, I'll write something and get and perform it on the right, mic. Right, right. And I said, okay, I'll do it the next time, you know, the next show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The piece is called Spaces, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I was writing it. Mm -hmm. I was still writing the end. I was like, I don't know how I want to end it. I was writing the end before, like, she called me up. And then I had got <laughs> the, I got what I wanted to say. And then I went up there. And, nice. did it. and then from then, I, I've been doing poetry ever since. I think that was probably 2005 or something like that. Oh, wow. So 14 years now. I guess, yeah. yeah. But I still wouldn't say that I, I don't really like to call myself a poet. You know, oh, I mean, I'll, I'll do poetry. Right, but right. I, yeah, I mean, I don't study it as probably as well as I should. I don't <laughs> devote as much time to it as I should. Right. But I'm more like to spotlight others. So it mm -hmm, kind of mm -hmm. goes back to that role of being the journalist or being the person that allows the other person to tell their story. Right, mm -hmm. right. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Was that your concentration in college journalism and what yes I went to ASU Walter Cronkite school oh, cool. I started with journalism I went to Carl Hayden high school and I mm -hmm. initially wanted to be in computer science and computer uh -huh, programming uh -huh. and then somewhere along like trigonometry or so I don't know I just like <laughs> oh I don't want to do any more math uh, <laughs> and I just yeah I was like I don't want to do this anymore I need mm -hmm, to do something mm -hmm. else 
So then I got on like the school newspaper. Right. And that's what I would always do. I'd go to the sports and go interview people. So that that's kind of where it all started in high school. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. You wanted to go into basically print journalism, pretty much. Right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't want to do like broadcasting. I mean, I, right. I do that now. You know, now <laughs> our world is full of like podcasts and doing that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. no, I didn't want to be on the air as an mm-hmm, anchor or mm-hmm. anything like that. Right. I actually did not want to really do print. I mean, I didn't want to be a, a daily journalist. Like I knew I did oh, not want to go okay. to a paper and like that's what you're doing like yeah. 24-7. Yeah. It's very demanding. Yeah. Yeah, so more being able to do features or do yeah, freelance yeah, works. Yeah, I did yeah. a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's better. I just thought in terms of when you think of like, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought it was a well-rounded type of a degree. It you is. know, it allowed you to be able to learn about a lot of things, a lot mm-hmm, of different mm-hmm. things. The communication aspect of being able to interview people and how to ask questions and how to get at the story. Yeah, um, definitely. Mm-hmm. I feel like it has been really helpful in terms of teaching you to try to be objective, to try to find out information from as many sides as possible and to make a more informed decision. I always thought it was a good base to mm-hmm. have. So I'm, I'm very thankful for the years that I spent in that industry. Right. Still. Yeah. And then there's, you know, the different offshoots. So I think I also had emphasis in like public relations and marketing mm-hmm. and all that because it all kind of goes together. It's, it does. You know, it does. Mm-hmm. Especially given the things that you're doing now and it helps. And do you want to tell us about what you're doing now? What am I doing now? <laughs> well, in addition to like, you know, also doing like a podcast here on uh, Radio Phoenix, mm-hmm. I do a show at the Nash. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been doing a, a series at the Nash called Jazz Meets Poetry. I co-produced that with Mike Fister, an ASU professor. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's having poets and jazz musicians collaborate mm-hmm, based mm-hmm. on a theme. Yeah. Um, and then a new venture that I'm doing is called uh, the Awesome Foundation mm-hmm. Phoenix. Essentially, it's a micro-grant program. Right. Community members come together and they review applications and they give out a thousand dollars to one winner per month or every other month but on a regular basis right and it's just for anyone who has an awesome idea Mm -hmm. to impact the city yeah it's wonderful yeah so we launched it the end of may every odd month we'll give a grant out yeah the Mm -hmm. application though is due on every even month every even month on the 10th yes okay Okay, so it's pretty nice to have that because I know as an entrepreneur myself, finding initial funding is always the most difficult. You really need that little bit of help. I feel like the entrepreneurial world, well, (laughs) a lot of our world, I feel like we're in Sparta, basically. Everybody's saying, oh, well, if you thrive in this wolf-infested world, we will give you more money. Like, well, at that point, I don't right. really need yeah. your money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how do you, yeah, how do you jumpstart people's ideas? Yeah. yeah. So that's what it's about. So awesomephoenix.com is where you can get information or go to awesomefoundation.org. Great, great. And for your poem, Blues People, was that something that you wrote as part of the jazz meets poetry? No, series? let me see. I probably wrote this about 10 years ago, actually. Oh, wow, okay. So I have co-founded a, a, a company with uh, three other poets, artists, mm-hmm. called Black Poet Ventures. Mm-hmm. And so our whole aim when we started, and it was in like 2005, so it was around that time when I talked to you about getting on stage and doing a poem. Right. We wanted to just shift from 
the open mic kind of scene, the poetry slam kind of scene, right. and take poetry and put it on the theater stage mm-hmm. and have people collaborating from all of the arts genres, whether it's music or dance, from right. the acting world, but emphasizing poetry and spoken word. Right. So right. we would just write productions. They weren't necessarily plays because they weren't conventional plays, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. what we called them poetic ductions. Right. <laughs> and so the initial ones were, one, it was an all male show uh-huh. and they talked about fatherhood life love right that was the very first show we brought a international poet by the name of talam ac out okay. he had never been to phoenix and then we did a show talking about poetry through the years from like slavery to hip-hop is what we mm. kind of did it so it's mm. called echo versus mm-hmm. black poets yesterday today right. right and then it just morphed into that any kind of idea they like oh want to talk about this or do this. So I had a fascination with an artist by the name of Donny Hathaway, uh-huh. a 70s soul singer. He would do a lot of writing. He was on Atlantic, so he did a lot of writing for Aretha Franklin, I think. His story was very unknown. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot on him. There wasn't a biography, but he died when he was 33, I believe. Okay. Um, he was diagnosed with uh, paranoid schizophrenia, and wow. he fell out of a, a New York hotel window. Mm-hmm. Another way too that people might know him is he would sing duets with Roberta Flack, okay. song uh, "Where Is the Love." They're old school tunes, but if you mm-hmm. heard it, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that song from a long time ago." And so I just wanted to find out more about him, so I would just do searches. Mm-hmm. Nothing would pop up really, so you know you just listen to his music. And then I did a search, and I found this professor in Georgia who wrote a book of poems inspired by his life. Oh wow! And so I reached out to him. And I said, you know, I'd like to adapt this for the stage. Would you give me permission to do that? Mm-hmm. And then from there, he said yes. And then I went to writing. Nice. You know, I, and this poem was written for that production. Wow, that's great. <laughs> do you mind reading it for us? Sure, yeah. We are blues people, Leroy says. The blues is devil's music preacher says, musicologist, every great blues man is the devil's son-in-law. Grandfather of rock and roll, godfather of soul, king of pop, at all from the black pool of genius. Sacrifice everything to be the greatest, even if it's their souls. He says, by their works, you will know. So alone with their hope in search of superhuman billing, they meet at the crossroads. Dark night decisions where the only rules are there are no rules, because they'll only get broken. You can't win anyway, and there's really no turning back. Gotta cope. Dark night, denial. Nigger, don't let the sunset get the rope. Skin color curfews replace whip crack dawns. Pain and anguish eked out through field hollers and work songs. Negro melodies and blackface never truly belong, but long to be and be free. We are blues people, Leroy says. Masters of sounds, rhythms, chords, unbroken in our stance, even though circumstance enslaved us. Happenstance Christians say a cursed people they are, but we save them. He told them you will know them by their works, and so they worked sun up, sun down, dark night depression, midnight dreams, and renaissance beliefs, still nameless, but no such thing as voiceless. Sacrifice everything to be heard. Jumping to juke joint blues and syncopated shouts, face to face with their Jordan, ready to cross into the promised land, leave the past behind, but they still carried the blues. Wrapped it in gospels, Waved it like a torch of sacred fire. They begged for attention. Black people were listening, still needing a real-life scarecrow to ward off Jim's deeply-rooted darkness. Needing something real funky, real loud, something that said we alive, something that made them dance the bruises away, but never the blues, because the blues mean 
we alive and still have more living to do. This is message music, SOS music, bottles thrown out to sea from stranded psyches in need of rescuing, out goes the call, in comes the response, and through it all they were there, this black pool of genius orchestrating the masses, interpreting, illuminating our dark night hues, and if the blues is devil's music. Perhaps that's his way of chasing time spent with angels, his chance to live vicariously through bass lines and grace notes footnote. Long after the legends move on, buried in gold-plated coffins or unmarked graves, the music never dies, we never say goodbye, records go unbroken, titles remain intact, and history waits to resurface, S.O.S., and for a brief moment, they become human again. So this is for those dark nights at the crossroads. Grandfather of rock and roll, godfather of soul, king of pop et al. from the black pool of genius, who sacrifice everything to be the greatest, even if it's their souls. By their works, you will know we are blues people. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's such a very historically significant poem. He had coined this term, I believe, Black Pool of Genius. Mm -hmm. So there's a song that he was singing live at, in a concert, and he says this is dedicated to the Black Pool of Genius. And who he was referring to with that phrase was Stevie Wonder, mm -hmm. an artist that he also worked with. Right. And so this opens it up that that pool of genius is inclusive of so many people. Right. In fact, Donny Hathaway could be part of the pool of genius, mm -hmm, you know, but mm -hmm. yet he's given it up to others that were his peers or, or before him. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the bases. But the other person in there is Leroy Jones, which mm -hmm. is a Mary Baraka. He oh. wrote a book, I think it's called Blues People. So he's talking about Negro music and mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the history and the journey in that. Mm -hmm. And so that poem is essentially that history of black music. Mm. Mary Baraka is the father of so many movements, the black arts movement. He's the founder of that, or he would be considered the founder of that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of look at him as this grandfather of poetry mm -hmm. and definitely connected to jazz. He always included jazz as a background or not even the background, probably just part of his work and what he does. So. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So before I knew this backstory, which he told us about Donnie, I had thought it was a more uh, historical poem of not just the musical genres, but all the trauma that in a way inspire the music. While it talks about the music, it really harkens back to all the pain. Well, not just past pain, right? Current pain as well. Now that I know the story a little bit, I was wondering how much of this story is taken from Donnie's biography. I wouldn't necessarily say it's his story. It's, it's really using that line that he talked about, the black pool of genius. Okay, as a jumping um, off point. Right. Okay. I mean, he's in there in the sense of sacrificing his life. As many artists or others that will do, you may sacrifice your family, you may sacrifice maybe some of your beliefs or whatever to mm -hmm. do this art that you have. Right, you know? and, right. And he was a true genius. He's just a remarkable artist, and it was just sad that his life was cut so short and that right. he was affected by so many demons, if you will. Right. But this is, yeah, this is the story of the black experience and that music was most important in, as you said, getting through the trauma, but in just surviving mm -hmm. and, yes. and having hope mm -hmm. and that that's what that's about yeah in the biographical book of poems uh, that was about him did you find any answers in terms of how his 
mental illness was related to whatever he went through and what what was it that he went through? I don't know if we really know that. I mean, there has been like some small brief documentaries. There's a, a network or cable show called TV One. And mm-hmm. so they have the series called Unsung. And so they do tell stories of, of different musicians. Right. And they did one on him. Oh, great. I think maybe he always had some maybe mental issue Mm -hmm. from just a young age. So this particular book of poems, it was written by Ed Pavlik. Mm -hmm. And it's a creative writing piece. So it's not a true biography. It's just him taking all of what he knows and him relating to his music and then trying to tell the story through like an interviewer. And he then goes out and researches, you know, he travels to where he used to grow up, where he was born and just asking people, hey, you know, Donnie Hathaway, do you remember him? He's interviewing musicians and they're all sharing their stories about this particular person. Right. But one of the things is, is it talks about him playing the piano when he was young and that he would hear all of these sounds and mm-hmm. something, you know, triggered. Maybe it was a lot of pressure, but maybe it was just always there. That mm-hmm. It was just something genetic or something. Right. Right. And it would just happen to come out at whatever particular time that he was dealing with. I think, too, an, a person who's a musician and that gifted. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's like that fine line, you know. Yeah. That, yeah, I don't know. You're just constantly in this high creative energy, and mm-hmm, maybe there's mm-hmm. just something that I don't know. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, mean, I think I think a lot of our talented musicians and artists they suffer in some sort of way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I talked about this with another poet before. I think it was with Atlas Saint Cloud. And I had just read something about that. We, it turned out both of us read the same thing. And it was something about you don't necessarily have to suffer for your art. But boy, do, does suffering bring about incredibly intense kind of artistic experiences, right? But yeah, there is that concept of having to suffer for one's art, mm-hmm. whether through physical or mental pains, or the fact that the arts, very seldom do people make a living as an artist. Usually art is one of those things that they do among a myriad things that they do. Mm-hmm. Do you find that in doing what you do, you know, have these entrepreneurial experiences, do you find that it's possible for us to kind of get out of that system? I don't mean for artists to all be millionaires, be nice, but to to not have to suffer in order to do good work. Do you do you think you have to suffer to do that? Like the starving artist is what you kind of mean, right? Yeah, which like is that. most artists, um, right? Yeah, well, I think that's all of our perception, too, on mm-hmm. how we value artists. And I yeah. think we have been conditioned to say that art has to be over here and everything else has to be over there. And therefore, if I'm moving over here trying to make money with my art, then I'm not being true to my art. Mm -hmm. And no, it's like any other livelihood. You you should be able to do that. I understand in terms of having integrity or certain boundaries or lines that you Mm -hmm, would have mm -hmm. with your art, but you would do that in any job or any aspiration that you're doing. Right. But you should be able to make a living with your art. Yeah. You may not make a lot, but there are people that do. So it's just, it's what you are going to put into it and what you're going to give it. Mm -hmm. For some people, that's not their aim. Right. You know, the art does something maybe for them or as an addition to the things that they do. It's Mm -hmm. more of a healing for them or they Mm -hmm. also want to impact others and heal them. Right. So it's just, it's just what 
emphasis that you place on it. But I don't think any emphasis is wrong. If you have an artist over here who says, hey, I'm making money with my art, that right. doesn't constitute you being a sellout. You no, know, that's, no. You're doing what you should be doing. Right. And then the others who say, oh, that's not what I want to do with my art. Right. This is how I want to treat it. Then, okay, that's fine. But to dictate what art needs to be, mm-hmm. I think that's where we get in the tricky situation. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And yeah. I think from what you said, the, the description of both sides of someone who is making money or not, the emphasis is on desire, personal desire, personal want, whether or not somebody wants to be making a living off of their art. And I, I feel like you can maybe define that line of crossing over into a sellout when you no longer care about what you're making. You're solely making it for making money. Right. There's nothing wrong with making the money. It's right. in your purpose and why perhaps you were making the money. Yeah. But yeah. to say, I want to make a living doing this and just do that, we should be able to do that. The other part of it then too is how you are doing your art, like how well you are at your craft. So mm-hmm. you should be striving to improve and to be right. the best, right. not just like, oh yeah, I'm an artist. And so everything I do is good. No, like there's some degrees and levels to this. So, you know, that's how people stand out and you can tell. Now, it's not to say that you can't get up on the mic and do poetry or play the guitar or whatever, but Mm -hmm. if you're not working to master, then it's either a hobby or, you know, it's it. however it satisfies your needs. Right. But when you are getting into that world of you're making a living, then you have to really say, hey, what am I putting out there? Yeah. How is this impacting the world? What am I trying to say at the same time? Yeah. Well, there's also that perception versus actuality, right? You know, when we think of modern art, a Pollock, for instance, I mean, we don't necessarily think of it as something that involves skill or, or time, but it might. Right, yeah, because right? we don't know what goes into that. Yeah. And I, you don't know what the, the vision or what's going on in their head or their world, but then if it's impacting and affecting people, his art's all over, right? It's yeah. art, and it, it's tough because art is what—it's subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that mm-hmm. whole like, oh, I like it, I don't like it. That's that. Ooh. But I think the determining factor is—is is it moving people? Is it impacting people? Is it asking questions? Is it creating the conversation and dialogue? That's what the art should be doing. Yeah. We go back to the poet Amiri Baraka and quote that he says he says all art is political Mm -hmm. so it should be doing something right and not politics in the sense that we hear no but it should have a message it should have a statement it should have a purpose yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's saying something rather than just Mm -hmm. i feel like that's part of the reason why artists are both put on this sort of rarefied platform as well as not being valued or in a society that's basically, well, right now, for instance, we're cutting funding to the arts. Arts are not being funded in schools, especially school districts that already has funding issues to begin with. That's sort of like a luxury item, right? Whereas it's not. Mm-hmm. You do this more, I feel like, more widely than I do. How do you see that in Phoenix, for instance? See the value of the arts, like, like, or how it's perceived? How is it being valued? A number of ways. You see the value if there's people that are showing up at an event, 
mm-hmm. because they're consistently showing up. Like right. it's important enough for someone to spend two, three hours out of their day for that. So that right. that same value. Then you have on your other side, from a governmental standpoint, the value that they're placing on the arts in terms of funding the arts. Or right. that's probably where the <laughs> the lack of the value is. I don't yeah. think in the people and in the culture. I don't think there's any lack of value there. Yeah, it's weird because I I actually, from reading the news and such, and knowing how lacking there is in terms of funding for the arts, especially in the school systems, I was actually surprised because I spoke with someone at the National Endowment of the Arts, and she told me that no, 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 we're we're okay right now. So I don't I don't know. Maybe she's just telling that, and because I, I'm not sure how much it's being trickled down. And one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing here is because I want to see more diverse voices being represented. Because there is this historical link with skin color and socioeconomic status, and that's deliberately cast in this mold. Funding for certain areas of Phoenix, I know, is worse than others. So I was wondering if you have any experience with that at all, and how do you see it? Because you, you are a Phoenix native, whereas I'm only... I've been here not, not long ago. Yeah, I think it's about in getting the word out, letting them know what the process is. You know, mm-hmm. so a lot mm-hmm. of times I think, because I've even said it, I was like, ah, that's really not worth it. It's mm-hmm. not worth me putting the time and energy into that to hope to get it. Right. Right? Right. That's what happens with the grants and all of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's like, well, let me just work some extra hours and I'll fund my own thing or whatever. Right, I'll right, just right. put aside. That's the d- dilemma. I, I mean, I understand it. You can't fund any, everybody, just even with the program that I'm starting to do now. Like, mm-hmm. we can't give it to everyone, you right. know, and there are so many deserving individuals. So yeah. then the question is, well, what are some other creative ways for us to fund the arts mm-hmm. to get people to do what they are good at or deserving to do Mm -hmm. um, how can we fund that because it doesn't have to always be the traditional ways right so I think those are more the questions that we should ask Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah definitely it doesn't get to every people it's not always diverse enough it's still who you know it's who accesses information but at the same time that individual has to put in the effort and the work to do that right well I feel like besides the asymmetry of information right both availability and targeting, but also knowing that the resource exists, all of these things that feed into that asymmetry of information. But then there's also who are the gatekeepers, which is problematic. Intentional or not, whether or not they're thinking about who they're funding and what are the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. Because most often the consequences are unintentional, which is very sad. And once the playing field is not even, it will continue to be lopsided. And in fact, it will just tilt more. Mm-hmm. What you're doing, you are kind of evening it out a little bit. Trying, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we can only try. And, and the whole thing with that is the no strings attached. Mm. You know, so we're not looking for reports. There's no restrictions per se other than that you do the project mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that it's awesome. You know, like yeah, that you're, yeah. you're impacting the place that you live. And that that's the whole point. Yeah. Going back to your poem, I just want to say that I did not know who the grandfather of rock and roll was until I looked him up, what, oh. Robert Johnson. Yes, yes. <laughs> I know the other two. I was like, who is this person? Mm-hmm. And then I don't know how much you know about his life as well. Well, they did. There's a Netflix special on him. Have you seen those? I've heard the um, legend. I feel like, was it Ralph Macchio who was in a movie 
that talk about Robert Johnson, but not about Robert Johnson. I think Ralph Macchio, when he was really popular, mm-hmm. he had done a movie where he played a guitarist. And in that movie, I feel like there was a mention of this legend of somebody selling his soul to the devil at this crossroads. But it's been ages, okay? I don't even know if I saw that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, I'm not certain on that. Yeah, but that is a legend. I did recently watch, I'd have to watch it again, but there was a Netflix special. Oh, cool. Um, But it's a series that they do on musicians. Okay. They're always doing someone. But, yeah, that's an interesting story on Robert Johnson. It's just this whole kind of legend or this myth, like, is that really how, you know what? But that he was an innovative musician at his time. He was mm-hmm. doing what was not being done, you know. Right. How much do you think that legend feeds into a stereotype that people of color cannot do this? And if they do it, it must be right. something some untoward. Uh-huh. <laughs> some otherworldly thing right, right. is allowing you to do that. Right. Yeah, I mean, but I think it goes beyond a lot of people, right? That has been said of a lot of people, I think, mm-hmm. right? It also... When you talk about value, I think it devalues the individual, right? Because it's like, you're not able to do this. And it's always the person who's a master at what they do, and they put in all this work and all this effort, and they are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you have to say, well, you got to be part of the Illuminati, for all of that to work. I mean, like, you just can't. <laughs> There's right. a secret society that's granting you these gifts. So. Yeah, to which you want to kind of say, why not? <laughs> I mean, we don't know how hard he worked, and we don't know how he got to the mastery that he did. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to that like point about Pollock, whether or not we know how much an artist puts into a piece of work, right? Because the end product might seem effortless. I'm sure there's talent involved as well, but there's always work involved, right? You can't just count on your talent because no matter what, we are a creature of rather short lifespan. And, mm-hmm. and anything that we do physically, whether it's playing the guitar well or sports, it really depends on, on how well our physicality are and our mental states as well. Mm-hmm. So it, all of these things tie into each other, but... I feel like people much more prefer to talk about just, like, one aspect. Right. You know, like, the geniuses and mm-hmm. stuff. It's like, yeah. Or that it's just, like, overnight sensations. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel like there's shortchanging, as you said, the, mm-hmm. the poets. Your poem, in terms of the historical aspects of it, you go through a lot of history of black America. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular that you want to point out that you feel like people should be looking at, especially that they might not readily know? No, I think it, it's there. I mean, I do do like a little play on words. Like I talk about this scarecrow mm-hmm. to ward off Jim's deeply rooted darkness. So that, mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the time of like the Jim Crow era. Right, right. That's where that kind of is. Mm-hmm. But really, like, the one line I think that always, it, this is message music, SOS music. Mm-hmm. So it's is like, this is how we heal. It's music that has a purpose. It's more than just the background. It is a soundtrack to an experience mm-hmm. that is rich and cultural and important. And then you just have these people who are orchestrating that, who are making sure that that existence, mm-hmm. those voices matter. Yeah, and I felt like, 
there is something so poignant about that. This is message music, but SOS music is that even though these musicians managed to turn their incredible cross-generational pain into something that people can enjoy, can actually take pleasure in, that they are sending out a signal of sorts to say, maybe don't just enjoy this music, but get to know me better, get to know mm. what's traumatizing me and maybe fix it, or that aspect behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an education, it's a learning. And that's what I say, the, a rescuing. I mean, mm. that's what it is. It's a rescue. These lives of these musicians who live out their life to telling the story of a people, of a shared experience. Right. But I don't know if they do get rescued, though. Since you mentioned the King of Pop, James Brown lived a very good life, one could say, compared to Michael Jackson. I don't know about that. I mean, I think these are all troubled souls. I think we see one side. We see the celebrity. We see the musician. Mm -hmm, But, mm -hmm. I mean, James Brown had some issues. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. At the same time, he's survived, right? He's survived as long as he has. He didn't... I mean, I don't feel like Michael Jackson had to die at 50. I, I don't feel like his legacy has to be what it is today. Despite how much people love his music around the world, there's still that. If people had concentrated on helping mm-hmm. instead of taking advantage of your celebrity, I mean, from his dad onwards, basically, mm-hmm. then maybe he will continue to be living today. True. And then, or you could look at it as he did a whole lot more living than an average 50-year-old. You know what I mean? It's true. Based on just the art that he was in. So ever since he was little, that's like extra years. You could look at the same with like Prince. I mean, he died at a a young age as well, right? But lived such a life that was just constant creative moments, constant giving Mm -hmm. of that art. And so I don't know how long sometimes that you can exist yeah you know i mean there's there's certain people that you just like you have done all you can do right they kind of burn bright and they burn out right Mm -hmm. winnie houston as well they're legends but i mean for their sake not for our sake because we're fans but for their sake i don't quite remember exactly how prince passed but you know both winnie houston and michael jackson there could have been preventable I think all of them. In those connections, they were all had something to do with drugs, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the root. No. There's a whole no, lot of other no. things that was there right. that may not have been addressed that they were dealing with. And that's why it's like these troubled souls, these troubled geniuses. And they're just like everyday humans, mm-hmm. right? They have these superb gifts or what have you, but they're living out their lives like all humans and they have family problems, they have dysfunctions, and they have oh, that. Yeah, yeah. And then it's just heightened because they do have the celebrity. They, everyone does know them and all of that. So having to balance both of those kind of worlds, I think, puts a lot on individuals. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know either Prince's or Winnie Houston's upbringing very well. But was Prince's father abusive? I feel like he was, right? Not toward him, maybe, but toward his mother. Well, I think, this is yeah. according to Purple right. Rain, basically. Right. <laughs> so we don't know how much of an autobiography mm-hmm. that is. No, I do believe there was probably some um, 
familial violence there. Yeah. Um, but his father was also a musician and just in that kind of world, right? right so right. Prince was always in that world, I think, always around women and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, you know, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. yeah a, lot, a lot of stuff going on that maybe a young person shouldn't necessarily be growing <laughs> up in, but right. that was his world of his father or whatever. And, I, and his mother was a, a singer or a musician as well, too. Mm-hmm. Like, so they were as a musical family. Yeah, I just feel like the system is in place right now, not just within the African-American artist community, is that the system is not in place to help people who become famous partly almost to escape or because of their trauma, their familial trauma, and then they never get the help they need, though we as public or as fans can benefit from their art. We're not able and we can't really take care of them in the way that they need to be taken care of. And so it goes back to your that SOS music that Go seems like unanswered, which is, I don't mean to put a sass bed, <laughs> but it kind of goes back to a little bit of a cycle of abuse and cycle of violence. Even though, again, for bystanders, we get all the glitter, we get all the beauty, we don't have to deal with our trauma. But maybe we all should think about how the system works and maybe we can nurture those people so that they can live longer, produce more beautiful things, not just for our consumption, but also for their lives, right? Because we would benefit a lot more if they live longer. Right, right. That's true. And it's kind of in response to that aspect of it, it's wanting to produce beautiful things and wanting not to let trauma be the only molding factor that I chose my poem, Maturation. So I'm going to read that now. Yes. So I can ask questions of you now? Yes. Okay, (laughs) So Maturation. Waves after overlapping waves envelop me with their savage embrace. I stand shattered in shivering flesh, drowning in thought of what I had been, searching to piece together a past in the mind assured of ancient glory, but the sea remains relentless in stripping away the dead remains, seeking rebirth in new form, fortified, ready for ever higher challenges, in merciless love the aquatic ladies in waiting burst through to rip away the layers of naivete surrounding a tenderness as if tasked by archaic prophecies to replace them with jaded outlooks and calloused emotions blunted by the atrocities these eyes have seen. I plead for freedom of the innocence, still clinging to these aching bones, knowing it would be sacrificed to witness countless sufferings, but the pure pain is required in the begetting of pure remedies. That's beautiful. Thank you. Short and sweet, but a lot in there. I see how we both discuss like this pool or water had some of the those similar images. Yeah. But tell me about this piece and what prompted you to write this and where were you at in space wise when you wrote this? I was recovering, trying to recover from trauma and wondering how the trauma I went through would change me, how much it would harden me. And it kind of goes back at the, towards the end of the poem about do we need pain to produce? Is pain necessary for producing beautiful things, for producing authentic 
products, let's say, not necessarily poetry or artistic things. This particular poem is besides the personal trauma and also I, I've done a lot of human rights work and where I'm just reading daily of horrible things that's taking place throughout the world. And part of the things that I find doing that in that industry is that it heartens someone, it desensitizes someone. And I find oftentimes people who are in that line of work not only don't take care of themselves very well, but also kind of form this hierarchy of pain in their minds. So almost like a grid system that they're kind of looking through when you're looking at other people's pains. Partly it's because of this lack of funding. You know, you have to decide who gets funding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you necessarily get on this ladder of pain. So it's both personal and a wider look at the industry. And so it's still about growth, though. It is. It's saying certain pain brings about or certain growth come about through pain. But I like to retain certain innocence, even if people look at it as naivete, because without that, then I'm going to kind of look through the grid of pain as I described it before. And then I think that hurts people more because we kind of get onto this weird hamster wheel of people saying, oh, this is how much pain I have, help me. But you say, only if you have this much pain. It's mm. not right to put it in that hierarchy. And we only do it because of the limitations, both human limitations in terms of attention span and also this artificial limitation of money, right? Because money is an artificial thing. Mm-hmm. And then is it also in there maybe using the pain as a crutch and then feeling that, like you said, like you need to have it in order to mm. exist or even to thrive? Yeah. I feel like it becomes like a drug, isn't it? Itself. Mm -hmm. Pain mm -hmm. itself. Speaking of artistic productions, I can't get to that intense point where I produce this authentic piece without me getting into this horrible whatever situation. I mean, mm -hmm. is that true? I don't necessarily think that is true. I think we can, as artists, uh, as anyone, empathy is something that we can cultivate. Again, it's kind of the dichotomy between nature and nurture. We don't have to necessarily to feel so much pain in order to produce intense, authentic products or experiences. Right. It's kind of like that's what we've been conditioned to believe, kind of the yeah. same way. With, well, this is how you have to partake of art. Yeah. You know, it has to be this certain way. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to question that. We need to question all those frameworks that we've been taught, right? And also transgenerationally that we've inherited. I mean, is this really true? I mean, are we just going to lose amazing experiences if we damn down our experiences of pain? I mean, I don't think so. Again, it's, I'm not sure if pain is necessary. I think it has its uh, uses. I don't think people should avoid them when they do come. If you feel pain, you should admit that you feel pain rather than act tough and say, no, I feel nothing. At the same time, I don't necessarily think we should go seek it. Mm-hmm. So now how do you use, do you use your art as a healing, as a healing for you? Yes, I started writing poetry in my tween years, on and off. 
So before 2016, I had taken like a 20-year hiatus, not necessarily because I consciously took one. It's just nothing came to me that said, oh, I have to write this down, and it's in the form of a poem. And then 2016, I started writing poetry again, partly because I had a crush. <laughs> but then I had this intense trauma happen to me, and I, I found that instead of prose, which I was writing at the time, I kind of stopped writing prose and went back to poetry and found that poetry was an incredibly potent vehicle in terms of helping me heal that and also coming out to these open mics, sharing my poetry. I'd never done that before. So this is a new experience out of an old tool. Mm -hmm. And what have you gained from that? Like, what has it brought to you? Part of the trauma that I suffered through was feeling not having a voice and having been silenced. So... To be able to come out to these open mics and just, you know, so lucky to encounter so many people who are nurturing and open to listening, not just my experiences, to everybody's experiences, was incredibly helpful in regaining the feeling of I do have a voice, I do have an agency. So that's been incredible. Mm-hmm. How have you been able to impact others, do you feel like? Or is it about others? Is it really more just uh, personal for you at this time? I feel like part of my resolution in the healing process was to help bring a platform to others, which is this show. I personally wanted to know the stories behind other people's poems, especially if I resonate with them. I'm like, oh, what's the story behind it? So for, for myself as well as because I know of the underrepresentation that's taking place, continues to take place, I wanted to give another platform that's within the boundaries of what I can do. So that's the more communal aspect of it. And I like that people are listening to the show and they are finding out about all the so many different open mics and poetry events are taking place that they didn't necessarily know before. But also to hear all these artists because that are at both different stages of their poetic career, as well as, you know, that come from so many different backgrounds. I mean, to me, it was a surprise as well, because I I didn't think of the diversity in terms of professional backgrounds, but it was an eye-opening experience to me, too. You don't have to be an MFA. I'm not. I love poetry. I enjoy writing it. It has been helpful to me, and I feel that it has been helpful for a lot of people who feel the need to come out and talk about their experiences through poetic form. Mm -hmm. I like you talk about this rebirth. Mm -hmm. How did you become born again? (laughs) From (laughs) When you talk about the trauma, does it always remain, or is there a way for you to, to be anew? I'm definitely going in a different direction than I thought I would prior to experiencing the trauma partly because of the trauma, partly because how I'm having to deal with the trauma. I think it does remain, it becomes less and less intense. It's still there. I mean, there are definitely times where I harken back. I have to tell people about what happened, and I can still live those emotions. But it doesn't haunt me as much as it did even a few months ago. Mm -hmm. I like that you talk about the aquatic ladies. 
Am I right in that's like the siren? Could that be close to? I think that could definitely be be that's interpretation. What I got yeah, that. oh. that's definitely a possibility for them. I don't know if I had any particular one in mind. That's just kind of where I went. I think you're right in your interpretation. I think that could have been inspiration for me as well. But it's it's been a while since I wrote this, and also I think part of it is the sense of not having your own agency. Because they're forcing a change onto me, right? I mean, if I have to guess at my own reason for doing that, might be because of the betrayal of friends that I felt, and they were women. But I think it can go multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Well, this image of water and how you kind of have a duality there, because mm-hmm. this water is life-giving, water is life-saving, or what have you. But then at the same time, you can drown from this. Yeah. You know, you, there can be destruction. Yeah. Uh, in that or erosion, I guess, if you will. So yeah. it's yeah, I see it, it's just a, a lot of those kind of layers and duality so that you're speaking of pain in there, but still I do get the hope, you know, the similarity mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. I was with my poem, you know, yeah. there's still the hope in yeah. there even though there's a lot of intensity going on. Yeah. When you talk about the dead remains and the, the shivering fresco but at the same time, you end with this remedy and yeah. the name itself about maturation so that there is some positive yes. aspect to it yes. um, and all of that. Yeah, I definitely feel that pain can bring about, I mean, it's a scientific fact that we, not just humans, learn through negative experiences. We react to negative experiences at about a three-time rate to positive experiences. So we're kind of built to to grow through pain, which is unfortunate for us, right? If we were better at growing through pleasure, then I think we would attract more pleasure into our lives, Mm -hmm. right? But then it's that, you know, how the saying, it makes you stronger. I mean, I know that's the cliche, right? Yeah, yeah. There is a certain benefit, I guess. Yeah, to it. But again, that's sort of like how we are built as well. It has something to do with how we're built. I feel like humans are one of those species that can evolve if we consciously think about where we want to go. That's the benefit of having such a largely well-developed brain. I feel like we're not really using it to that potential so much. I think one of the reasons for me writing this poem is a reflection on a question that I've asked myself over the past few years is, can I learn to learn through pleasure more than pain, therefore attract more pleasurable experiences that help me mature in life rather than pain? Mm-hmm. Knowing what I know about human capabilities and how we learn mm-hmm. as a process. So how can we help ourselves to better ourselves? Mm-hmm. You know, I guess that's like what the situations you put yourself in, right? Or yeah. the people you put yourself around. Yeah. Because that can also affect, you know, your situation, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Maybe doing more exercise. <laughs> <laughs> as painful as that can be. You know, like, oh. Yes. But, yes. you know, maybe, you know, that opens you up. Being out in nature, or I don't know. Yeah. But think um, of it, right? This is how deep this idea of pain a growth to pain is saturates our life. You know, no pain, no gain, all these sayings. Again, I feel like maybe if we decided, if we were more conscious about how we learn, that we can attract a smoother way of learning, a more pleasure way of learning rather than 
always mm. through pain. Right, that you don't have to go through yeah. certain experiences. Yeah, because we always, well, what's another word? Hitting rock bottom, right? Yeah. That you gotta, yeah, yeah, or yeah. you gotta learn the hard way. You know, yeah, go through yeah, it. Yeah, all like, these things. <laughs> right. you, know? you could see someone else's situation. You don't have to go through that right. to be able to know, like, you don't need to go through that. You right, know, I'm like, right, you can. Exactly. You can read about something or see someone's situation and learn from that and be like, no, I'm going to go do this or no, yeah. I'm not even going to yeah, yeah, attempt yeah. to do that. Not that there won't ever be any pain or any mistakes, but it right. maybe it's the level and the degree of it, too. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, Again, as I said before, I don't, I'm not trying to avoid pain altogether. I'm mm-hmm. not one of those people who will just like grin and, you know, like bare her teeth and a fake smile and say, no, I'm so happy. <laughs> no, if I feel pain, I'm going to talk about it. I mean, look at these poems, for God's mm-hmm. sake. You know, we have to talk about them. We have to face them. We have to admit to them and, and kind of surrender ourselves to that because that is the feeling rather mm-hmm. than saying that doesn't exist. But just going forward to see how can I learn in a better way that lessens the pain, but still be sensitive enough person to put my sensitive feelers out there and be authentic with other people and still be fully there with people rather than just remove myself. Mm-hmm. Because that is one way that people who've experienced trauma often do is that they actually remove themselves. Like, so retreat or um, yeah, they're just... Not- putting a guard up yeah there, there's this sort of invisible wall that you kind of feel is there you know between you and another person that because of trauma they were put up i mean i, I know people who've decided to date women because they've had horrible experiences with men i was like y- you know that's not gonna help you you're just you know right because you can have horrible experiences with any person yeah, right especially yeah. if there's maybe you haven't dealt with a certain thing or you're attracted to a particular type of person that you're going to yeah. always, you yeah. know, receive that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's not the wrapper. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, outer wrapper, it's mm-hmm. more like what's inside, what are you attracting, and mm-hmm. what are those problems that you have to encounter and mm-hmm. work with. And how are you communicating? Because yeah. communication is yeah. like a big, it is. you know, key in a lot of things. You know, we misunderstand miscommunicate that yeah. takes you on a whole nother yeah <laughs> you yeah, know path yeah. of and it sort of goes back to your poem as well right because we're talking about musicians here and this is their form they communicate yes granted they're part of this artistic world but they're not visual artists they use words for a living yet in many ways they're not communicating is that they are sending this these SOS is out there, mm-hmm. but in sort of like 140 characters limit or something. There's nuance that's being lost. And, you know, can Michael Jackson have been hoped? Could he have been helped if people were more in tune to what he was doing? If he admitted to what his problem was, could he have helped not hurting next generations? Because it becomes transgenerational. Like what R. Kelly's doing is transgenerational. Instead of paying good for they're paying pay for Mm-hmm. Right. And they are all using words as a living because they're songwriters. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that we come back to communication, which is true, is communication. But we first have to know what we're trying to communicate, right? We first right. Know, have to know how we feel about the trauma that we experienced. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they had a chance to do that. They ever sat down to do that because they 
became so famous. Right. And then you're just nonstop. You're just constantly work. You got to be this place, go to this thing. Yeah. You're, or you're also using that to avoid exactly. whatever you have to deal with. You exactly. Know? A mm-hmm. lot of avoidance. And I feel like stardom really doesn't help you in that. But there are some people who are able to continue with their stardom and still work through those processes. It's hard. It's difficult to do, but some people manage it and kind of want to know, how do you manage it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to be a celebrity. No. <laughs> Even if I wasn't going through the trauma, even if I wasn't limited by that, what happened to me, I still don't want my face plastered. I like my privacy. I really mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Yep. So This is fun. Yeah. Thank fun. you so much. Yeah, I, I really so. appreciate this. I wanted to find out from you, where do people see you read? I don't know if you do readings. I don't at, really you, do. You don't. No, no. I mean, every once in a while. Like, so I went to the... Arco Sante for the Global Steel Congress and okay. perform there. Nice. I like. I don't know. I just kind of space out mm-hmm. performances. In terms of people following you, for those who don't know you already, what other ways can they follow you besides going to the Nash and see you in December? Oh, um, I mean, I'm on social media as Leah Marche. Okay. Uh, L e a h uh, March like the month with an e. Yeah, LeahMarche.com. You can look me up there. Great. And so when you say social media, do you mean all three, Facebook as well as Twitter and Instagram? Or? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So all three I the think same. like pretty much. I okay. think Instagram might be Ms. You put the Ms on there. M- <laughs> M-S. Leah Marche. But yeah, it's, it's well, there. Cool. This, is, yeah. this has been wonderful. I really appreciate you doing this with me. Oh, uh, no. Thanks for yeah. asking. And uh, it's great to meet you, to go out, you know. Sometimes you like you don't know who you're gonna run into when yes. you go and yes. to the places, so that's great. Yeah, but, um, yeah, very commendable what you're doing. And, thank you. Appreciate uh, thanks that. for doing that. Yeah. yeah, and I appreciate you guys all coming on to the show and and helping me build it up so that it's you know truly a platform for people, especially for people who don't have their own events and for people who are starting out. I wanted them to know, and I want to inspire. Uh, younger people, but everybody who, who think of poetry as this thing that people have to have MFAs to do, to say, no, no, there's a lot of people doing this. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week and holiday, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.